Well, good evening. You awake out there, Floyd? I was. You were? I don't know the reason for it now. Well, thanks for coming back this evening. We're going to talk about dragons tonight. Dragons. And you guys have been wondering about dragons for a long time. We're going to answer your questions about dragons tonight. Uh, so you might want to find a spot where you can see the slides well. We get lots of slides again this evening. And uh, for some of you that have heard some of my presentations in the past, you'll see some familiar material. Uh, it's kind of like, uh, you know, you get a cup of coffee, but you can have the vanilla flavor or the mocha flavor. I had a guy come to me, um, I guess maybe a year and a half ago now, about between a year, year and a half ago, and he wanted me to do a talk on dragons. So I had a certain amount of material already, but this guy took a little twist on my dinosaur talk. And uh, So this is the question, are dragons mythical? Or are dragons historical? Not hysterical, Floyd. Historical. Alright, make sure you get that right. How many think dragons are mythical? Somebody's kind of after about how many think historical? Boy, we got a tough crowd here. Then there's Rick Ross. He's just not taking a chance on this thing here. He's not going with either one. I think the historical got a got a little bit of a better a better participation right here. I did this presentation at Trinity Christian School week before last, and almost everybody was mythical. And uh, we have to understand what we mean by dragons, of course, and define these words a little bit. But here's our outline. I want to talk about dragons around the world, talk about dragons in the Bible, dragon descriptions that seem biologically problematic, implausible. Like, how can a creature have these particular things? And then finally, I want to give you a couple of dragon histories that I think are, are quite credible and might very well be real. But we have to understand that we've got to separate the Hollywood presentation of dragons, okay? I'm not talking about Smaug on Lord of the Rings, Mr. Lemon. We're not talking about how to train your dragon. You know, you get all kind of crazy stuff. you got green dragons, right? This fuzzy green dragon. They're reptiles, for crying out loud. Fuzzy green dragons, really. A uh, peach dragon here, or maybe, you know, this wonderful Disney classic, Raya and the Last Dragon. So... You know, the, the kids always appreciate these. But that's not what we're talking about, dragon fantasies. When we talk about dragon tonight, we're going to use this definition, a monstrous reptile. Monster reptile. Because you see, the word dinosaur, dinosaur, terrible lizard, Greek, Greek word, wasn't coined until 1841. And he actually used it for the first time in writing the year after. So 1841, 1842. Scientists kind of go by things in writing. If it's not in writing, it's not real. Uh, before this, the European historians and scientists all called the great reptiles dragons. You have to understand, they were already digging up the bones in the 1700s, early 1800s. Uh, first uh, dinosaur skeleton that was pretty much complete, 1824. Um, you had pterosaurs even before that. So what did they call them? They called them dragons. The King James Version of the Bible is translated in? The King James, what year? No. 1611. My bad. The word's not coined to 1841. You're not going to see the word dinosaur in your King James Bible. It wasn't invented for them to use. It's a relative, I say relatively, new word. But you are going to see the word Dragon in the King James Bible. 
that's the word they had to use. That's what the scientists and even the historians in the Middle Ages used. Now here is uh, 2003, a guy named Carl Schuker. As far as I know, Carl's not a Christian, not even claimed to be, but he wrote a book called The Natural History, Dragons and Natural History, and he says, quote, in the world of fantastic animals, no, he doesn't think they're real, since they're fantastical, okay? In the world of fantastic animals, the dragon is unique. No other imaginary ahem, creature has appeared in such a rich variety of forms. It's thought there was once a whole family of different dragon species that really existed before they mysteriously became extinct. Indeed, as recently as the 17th century, scholars wrote of dragons as though they were a scientific fact. Their anatomy and natural history being recorded in painstaking detail. As if they were real. No other imaginary creature has been so specifically treated in our histories as the dragon. Well, we have dragon stories not just in uh, medieval Europe, but li literally around the world. They're, every major culture has a history of dragons. A uh, dragon was the name given to the most terrible monsters of the ancient world. Dragons did not really exist. Again, this is World Book Encyclopedia. Uh, dragons did not really exist, but most people believed in them. The dragons of legend are strangely like actual creatures that have lived in the past. They're much like the great reptiles which inhabited the earth long before man's supposed to have appeared on earth. Every country had them in its mythology. Isn't that strange? Completely imaginary, fantastic creatures, and yet every country has them in its mythology. Very interesting. Well, I'll give you a little smattering here. Here's Dragons of the Middle East, the Jewish poet Israel Mahara, and he's 1600 AD, told of the Babylonians worshiping a dragon. The prophet Daniel killed the dragon by baking pitch, fat, and hair to make cakes that caused the dragon to burst asunder upon consumption. So you see this little picture. He, he built these cakes, and of course the dragons breathed fire, and he says, here, dragon. And he, of course, he included some yummy fat with that, but then also pitch. And so the dragon swallowed all this stuff down. Next time the dragon breathed fire, he blew up. Now, I, I don't know if this story is 100% true, okay? But the point is, they're telling stories. It's in the pocket. So there you go, right? But and even the walls of Babylon have dragons on them. Now, this is actually these are actually remnants of the blue brick of Babylon in a museum in Munich, Germany. Uh, and the, the scale dragons, forked tongues, and you know you can see the bulls and the lions and the dragons on these walls of ancient Babylon. So you know there you got it in the Middle East, but the Far East also lots of dragon stories from China. Uh, this is probably the oldest. Now, why is this significant? Well, you see a person buried here, and all this decoration here um, is it's made out of shells. So all these shells here. But this cemetery goes back thousands of years. And why it's interesting is the dragon motif did not change significantly from ancient China thousands of years ago. Now, if they concocted something, like it's a straight up just invention, then generally over the years it'll get embellished and changed and you know, kind of like morph over time. But 
if it was actually a root creature they knew, it's more likely it's going to stay pretty consistent. And that's what we see in these uh, Chinese dragons over the years. And by the way, they have their 12 signs of the zodiac, right? And you get the pig and the horse and the rooster. You ever go to a Chinese restaurant trying to figure out what year you are? And, ah, oh, you're a pig and you're a monkey. And, you know, and it's kind of fun. It doesn't mean much. But, but one of them is a dragon. And, and all the snake and all the others are well-known animals that we know are real and alive. Well, why would they have included one mythical animal? I, I don't think it was a mythical animal. I think they knew of dragons. Uh, this is a book, Dragons in China and Japan, and uh, this historian writes, In 1611, the Chinese emperor appointed the post of royal dragon feeder. Historical accounts tell of Chinese families raising dragons to use their blood for medicines and highly prizing their eggs. The emperor Yu the Great used dragons to pull his chariot. This is uh, Dinosaurs from China, another book, The Interpretation of Dinosaurs as Dragons goes back more than 2,000 years in Chinese culture. They were regarded as sacred as symbols of power. Uh, Marco Polo was the first outsider European to really travel extensively in China, and uh, he would write a book after all his travels called The Travels of Marco Polo, right? And he talks about huge reptiles with their four parts, with two short legs and three claws. Quote, their jaws are wide enough to swallow a man, the teeth are large and sharp, their whole appearance is so formidable that neither man nor any kind of animal can approach them without terror. So he's talking about them like they're real creatures. Uh, we've got, uh, interestingly, a number of dragon statues from some of these ancient dynasties. And this is one that appeared on the antiquities market in New York City. I was able to buy this thing. But you see the scale-like patterns, this interesting head crest, really a rather long tail, and three Toes. The only thing with three toes today is birds. Um, so this is very strange to have on a reptile. Uh, but it's actually a pretty good facsimile of an oviraptor. Here's another one. This is uh, one that appeared uh, in Hong Kong on the antiquities market. And look at the similarity. And this is 1766 BC. No one's digging up dinosaurs at that point. How did they know what a Sarlophis dinosaur looks like? But, but look at the similarities. I think they knew about monster reptiles, and they called them dragons. So we got the Middle East, the Babylonian walls, this account of Daniel. We got the Far East, the Chinese, but then lots of accounts from medieval Europe. Very common in um, cartographers, map builders, that when you got to the certain edge of the map, they would put, here be dragons. And, uh, of course, they're showing this sea serpent going around a boat. That's a, that is a big sea serpent, wouldn't you agree? And what's that? Uh, pig dragon? I don't know. So they just kind of throw some stuff in there a little bit. But uh, it was very common for them to, to have reports of dragons. Uh, perhaps in British literature, you heard of the book Beowulf. Um, maybe you even have to read a little Beowulf. And Beowulf conquers dragons, and he dies while fighting a dragon, a winged dragon, in 583 A.D., is it all gospel true? I don't know, but you know, this this has a kind of a ring of authenticity to it. Very common in uh, medieval art, this uh, St. George slaying the dragon, common motif, painted, carved, sculpted. Uh, this particular one's from 1450 AD, well before anybody's digging up dinosaurs. And yet you get a lot of similarity in the way these creatures look to dragons, uh, the dinosaurs. So medieval Europe. 
But then even in this country, in the Americas, there are reports. There's a gentleman named Henry Schoolcraft. Now, Henry was a Christian, actually a missionary, uh, but he was also a geologist and an Indian agent, and kind of multitasking a little bit, bivocational, trivocational or something. And he told stories about this Unktehi that he learned from the Indians. And that he learned it was something like an ox, but much larger. And he made these drawings. So these top two are drawings that Schoolcraft had in his book uh, based on the Indians' drawings on birch bark. But notice the, the notches going on the back. Notice the re reptilian, kind of very thick and smaller legs, very much like an Ankylosaurus. And so he talks about these Unktehi monsters and uh, in fact, there's one of these that has been uh, carved by the Indians, the, the Indian artwork at Agua Rock up in, in Canada, in Ontario, Canada. Look at the horns here, see? And just for scale, here's a canoe. You see that back there with the little Indians in there? Uh, so, I mean, these creatures are huge. Whatever else they were, they were monstrously big. Um, how about Africa? Well, there's a report from the Romans uh, the Romans have this report, and it's written down by a St. John of Damascus, who was an Eastern monk. And he talks about when the Roman army was attacking Carthage. Now, Carthage is what would be today like Libya. It's northern Africa. It's on the Mediterranean. But the Romans were conquering it. And as the Roman legions were fighting against the city, a dragon sneaks up behind them. They had to turn around and fight the dragon and kill the dragon... And supposedly, according to the reports, they actually had this thing skinned out and the hide was sent to the Roman Senate. That's all reported by St. John of Damascus and he writes it down. And his whole point of the book is to say, they're not magical creatures. Dragons are just real animals. They're just animals. There's nothing superstitious about them. There's nothing demonic about them. They're just animals. That's what he's writing in his book. Uh, so it's unlikely he'd make up a report that's an outright fabrication that would involve the Senate and, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 the army, the legion, and uh, it just wouldn't make sense. So quite likely there's some, some truth to that. So if you had all these dragons out there, well, what happened to them? How come Rob Lemon's not going to run into one in the dark on the way home, you know, going out towards Bodenite? Well... Dragons have lived with man, but people tend to bump off things that are a threat. And so people over the years have encountered them. Sometimes the dragon came out ahead. Sometimes the people came out ahead. But by and large, we've driven them to extinction. And also post-flood, you know, the Ice Age and stuff like this would have, would have been part of their demise. So, dragons around the world. Let's talk about dragons in the Bible. If you've got your Bibles, you can open it, but I will have most of the verses on the overhead. Genesis chapter 1 talks about God making the great reptiles. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 25, God made the beasts of the earth after his kind, the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps, that's your reptiles, creeps upon the earth after his kind, and God saw that it was good. What day of creation is this? Day six. Day six. Very good, Mr. Lemon. Day six. This is the same day that God makes man. Literally from the first day of man's existence, men and dinosaurs have coexisted on planet Earth. 
And the pterosaurs and the plesiosaurs, the swimming great reptiles, they're just one day earlier, right? So, I mean, men and dinosaurs are not separated by millions of years. Don't let anybody tell you that. That's clear from God's word that men and dinosaurs lived at the exact same time. So let's talk about some dragons in the Bible. We have uh, swimming dragons mentioned in the Bible. Actually, multiple places. Uh, something like the great swimming plesiosaurs. We've got walking dinosaurs. Who knows what species this is? What's that one there? Pterosaurus. Very good, Steffi. And then, of course, we have the flying great creatures or the pterosaurs. Some people say pterodactyls. Well, pterodactyls is one species. So really, the whole group of them is called pterosaurs. Question, question. Would dragons have been on the ark? We hear a yes from Tom. Tom's affirmative. Anybody else? The land-walking ones, sure. The land-walking ones. Okay, so would the plesiosaurs have been on the ark? No. How about the pterosaurs? Uh, maybe. Probably, yes. Everything that breathes the breath of air would have been on the ark. So all your birds and all your pterosaurs would have been on there, right? Nothing could fly literally for a whole year, right. year plus, without, you know, without eating and without sleeping. So... Yeah, you get the you pterodactyls down there. So yeah, they would have been in cages. Anybody been to the Ark Encounter? Anybody been out there to uh, Kentucky? If you're out that way, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Answers in Genesis built this actual full-scale Ark. It's really impressive. Really worth it. If you're anywhere near there or even make a trip, it's truly amazing. Um, it's not an advertisement. I'm not paid, but I'm just saying it's, it's pretty incredible. But that's, that's the Ark Encounter picture there. Uh, but yeah, they'd have been on the ark. And so you would have had uh, two of every kind of dinosaur and pterosaurs on the ark. So God commanded the earth to be replenished. That was God's command as they're coming off. And so the animals are going to obey God, right? They're going to spread out in obedience to God. They begin to replenish the earth. But the people congregate in this Tower of Babel really in disobedience to God's command in rebellion. And, uh, and God has to forcibly spread them out by changing the languages, right? So as these people groups then begin to move out from Babel, they begin to encounter populations of great reptiles. And Kazam, people have encounters with what they call dragons. They begin to call them dragons. The word dragon appears numerous times in the 1611 KJV Bible, translated before the English word dinosaur was invented. The original Hebrew word is tanin. Tanin is, of course, plural. Tan would be singular. Tanin is the Hebrew plural. And so that's, if you are were a Hebrew scholar, that's what we'd be talking about. But it describes both, it's a kind of a general word, a catch-all word, land and marine monsters. So it isn't just one specific type of animal. For example... If you were to go to Israel today, they speak Hebrew. But it's resurrected Hebrew. Hebrew as a language died. Nobody spoke Hebrew at, you know, whatever, 1600, 1700. It died. I mean, literally, Israel got wiped out. And they're speaking Yiddish here. They're speaking German over there. They're speaking English over and then they get back to the land. They say, well, we want to speak Hebrew. And so they resurrected the language. So they're pasting together from the Bible and other stuff and ancient sources, and they're speaking Hebrew again. But the Hebrew word today, if you were to ask a Hebrew-speaking Jew what Tanin is, they would say it's a crocodile. That's what their word means today. But that's not what the word 
means in the Bible. Because it talks about the tining of the seed. And then no dragon, there's no crocodiles running the sea, you know? So it's a more general word, a ketol word, is how the Hebrew word uses it. Psalm 74, 13 and 14, Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength, thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters, thou breakest the head of Leviathan in pieces. Here's another one. Nehemiah 2.13, I went out by the night to the gate, the valley, even before the dragon well. So here's Nehemiah. He's coming to check out the beat-down Jerusalem. He's all sad and depressed because his home city is beaten down. He's permission from the king. He's checking it out. And he mentions this dragon well and the dung port and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down. Here's some broken down walls of Jerusalem still today. But in the midst of the rubble, he comes to this one spot and it has the name dragon well. Well, why is it called dragon well? I'm not sure, but maybe. After the Babylonians smash the city and take everybody exile, a dragon moves into the city. Hey, it's a nice place for it to hang out, right? And dragons like moist places, so kind of found this well area. Maybe it's settled down there. And now they're coming back. They want to settle Jerusalem. Perhaps they drive off the dragon, or maybe they kill it or whatever, and it gets the name dragon well. I'm just guessing. For some reason, that was a dragon well. Tradition says it's Warren's Shaft, which is still in Jerusalem today. That that was the dragon well. Don't know. Don't know, but there was a dragon well. Psalm 91, verse 13. You shall tread upon the lion and the adder, the young lion and the dragon shall you trample under feet. I had an argument with an atheist one time, and he said, Come on, the Bible can't be true. Who would step on a dragon? I'm like, well, why stop there? If you, if you don't want to say the Bible is true, well, who's going to step on a lion? But what the guy didn't understand is you step on them after you kill them. This is a tradition going back thousands of years. In the Middle East, after you conquer an enemy, you step on them. And the point of it is, is God, through God, you can get victory to step on even dragons. And there's lots of artwork of this. Stepping in triumph on a foe that was just vanquished is a tradition that is thousands of years old. This imagery presents the dragon as a real physical foe, just like the lion and the adder. Here's another one, Jeremiah 51, 34. The king of Babylon hath devoured me. He crushed me. He made me an empty vessel. He swallowed me up like a dragon. Somebody tell me, what would be kind of unique about the way reptiles swallow things? Oh. Yeah, they gulp them, right? They don't like kind of chew it or rip it to pieces like your dog might or your cat. They just go, gulp? The whole thing goes down in one big bite. And the, and, and the, and the psalmist is using this rich metaphor to say, I just feel like I just got eaten up by the king of Babylon. Like he just came and just swallowed the land in a bite. That's how bad it was. We didn't even put up a good fight. It was just gulp and eat us all up. The Bible talks about the fiery flying serpent. I have a whole talk on this. Some of you guys may have heard it before. But the burden of the beasts of the south into the land of trouble and anguish. From whence cometh the young and old lion, the viper, and the fiery flying serpent. I believe it's a dragon creature. It's a flying reptilian form 
and of course the flying creatures and the swimming creatures and the walking great reptiles they just called them all dragons that's how they describe them so dragons around the world dragons in the bible let's talk about some dragon descriptions that seem problematic I'll do this talks in some secular settings on occasion. People say, what? Do you really believe in dragons? Come on. It makes zero sense. Why, why, why would you say that? Well, don't you know dragons had these strange spikes and bumps? And dragons had these tiny wings. It's impossible that they, could, they couldn't possibly have flown. Uh, and all this stuff. So here's an example. This is uh, from St. Mark's Basilica in Venice. Okay, there's a church in Venice. And notice how little the wings are in comparison to the mass of this reptile. So if you're at all scientifically inclined or even just, you know, thinking practically, you're going to say, you're not, you can't get the lift from a wing that small, right? It just doesn't make sense. Wings have to be in proportion. If you're a sparrow, you've got a small wing, but if you're an eagle, you've got a huge wing, right? And there's just no way you're going to lift the mass of that thing with that tiny little wing. It just doesn't, doesn't make sense, right? Um, and, and yet, Peter Wellenhofer, who, fine German professor, wrote the Encyclopedia of Pterosaurs, makes a very interesting comment on page 20. He says, a flying dragon depiction is shown in Athanasius Kircher's 1678 book. Now that's way back, before they're digging up any reptiles. Kircher, in his book Mundus Septuaginus, which is Latin for the world down under, talking about dragons and serpents and this kind of thing, the underworld. This drawing is so compelling, Dr. Wellenhofer suggests it has been based on fossil finds. Now we get no evidence at all that they're digging up fossils that early. None. But he says the drawing is so good, this guy must have been digging up fossils. How else would he know how to draw a pterosaur? And he makes the point of saying the erect wingtips, rather than tucked down to the body like a bird, are distinctively pterosaur-like. Here's the actual picture. Notice this. See how small those wings are? But what Dr. Wellenhofer is saying is that in pterosaurs, all of this is wing. That whole thing, the whole arm, and this part coming up like this is just the fingertip. Pterodactyl means flying finger, dactyl's finger. And so that's all wing. And when they spread out that flight finger, it like triples their wingspan. But if you were just to see them walking around on all fours, you'd say, oh, it had these tiny little wingtips up. Well, that's just the finger, see, to keep it from dragging. And they would stand straight up like this. Scientists have figured out they would be erect. That's not how a bird's wings look. The word bird doesn't have their wings up like this, you know. They get them tucked down along the body. So whoever drew that picture, Wilmhofer saying, how did he draw it so good? This idea of these tiny wings actually fits real well because if you are a hunter and you see one of these things screwing on all fours, you don't even realize that this is all wing. And kind of a rubbery, bat-like potassium, they call it, but it'll get spread out and all become wing. You just see these tiny little erect wings and you're gonna tell the artist or the, or the sculptor, oh, he had tiny little wings sticking up. See, 
So it actually fits real well. So that's why dragons are, are shown with these tiny wings in some of this artwork. How about dragons that have these weird bumps, spikes, and even ears? Reptiles don't have outer ears. None do. Not snakes, not uh, lizards, none of them. None of them have turtles that do not have ears. Okay? And yet we see, this is, um, this is from Peru on some ceramics in the southern part of Peru in the Okokahi Desert. They dig these things up in the graves. And, of course, very dinosaurian, you know. Well, how come they draw on the dragon with all these spikies? And look at these things on its head. And, well, it looks kind of like ears, doesn't it? Here's another one. This is from medieval Europe. This is uh, 17th century. It's a tapestry from Dublin in France. Look at the spikes on this thing. Look at this head. All these gnarly things going on here. And what looks like ears there. Okay? Seems problematic. And then recently, we found a new species of dinosaur. Floyd, you're going to like this. New species of dinosaur made National Geographic. It was so unique. They called it Dracorex, Latin word for dragon, Hogwartsia. Does anybody know where Hogwarts comes from? Who said Harry Potter? Very good. You got it. Got the trivia prize today. If I have kids here, they all know, right? So Harry Potter talks about dragons. But here's what National Geographic says 2015. After two centuries of paleontological harvest, the evidence seems stranger than any fable and continues to get stranger. They dig up a dinosaur that's got all these spikes and humps and has horns that look like ears. Whoa, that's what people have been drawing for years. Very interesting. I just happen to have a actual replica, a museum quality replica of Hogwartsia. Draco Ricks Hogwarts here with me today. And uh, you guys can come take a look at it afterwards. If you handle it, please handle it with great care. It's one of my valuable friends. Why I don't have a lot of friends, okay? <laughs> but look at how gnarly that fella is, huh? Looks like a dragon. He smiles. He's smiling at you. By the way, look at those teeth. Would you say that's a carnivore or an herbivore? Face of the teeth. Herbivore. Very good, yeah. A uh, carnivore got to have a lot bigger teeth to rip that meat and stuff like this. This guy's chewing, probably biting with his beak like surface and then just chew, 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 kind of like a cow back there. So I'm going to set him here. <coughs> you can take a look at him afterwards. Please be careful with my dear friend Gricorix Hogwartsia. Okay. By the way, there's others too. Uh, this one's found in 2020. This is found just uh, a couple years ago. Skeletosaurus found in Britain. So they're finding more of these, you know, horny kind of um, dragon-like dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. Okay, here's another one. How could dragons breathe fire? Dino Dave, don't you know it's ridiculous? No way. Impossible. How could something breathe fire and not burn itself up? Job 41. 
talks about a creature called Leviathan. Leviathan. And the Bible is very explicit about this. That Leviathan breathes fire. Out of his mouth goes burning lamps. Sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils goes smoke, as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindles coals. A flame goes out of his mouth. It's not like it's saying, on a really cold day, Job, he'll go, and all that steam comes out, and it's just like coming out of a stove, man. It's like smoke coming out of his mouth. That's not what it's saying. It's saying a flame goes out of his mouth. So there's fire-breathing dragons. But not only we have the biblical evidence, we've got some pretty good evidence in other places as well. So Job talks about it, talks about it being creature of the sea, but we have historical evidence. That is, every major culture has, that has a history of dragons, has this idea of them breathing fire. Now, if it's just made up, why would they all pick the fire-breathing dragon to tell stories about? Why didn't one have a fire-breathing duck, one have a fire-breathing mosquito, and maybe one be a fire-breathing rabbit? I think it's because there really were fire-breathing dragons. But then we have a little bit of biological evidence for fire-breathing as well. Most of you probably heard about it. Who's heard of the bombardier beetle? You guys all heard about the bombardier, my friend, the bombardier beetle? Okay. So the bombardier beetle has these two chambers in his abdomen, hydrogen quinine, hydrogen peroxide, combine them together with a catalyst and poof. An explosion at 212 degrees Fahrenheit, and it's yeah, it's serious. It's serious. This thing can put out some pretty nasty smoke. And there was a boy not long ago where one of them landed on his neck, and he went to slap it, thinking it was a mosquito, and he got a beetle burn. That's for real. That's a real story. This guy got a bombardier beetle burn. So yeah, these things they got some power, even though they're a small bug, only be about half the size of your finger uh, in length, but they are they pack a punch. So maybe some of these dinosaurs, we have some paleontological evidence for some really big head crest. Uh, last summer, Gloria and I were down at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, and we got to go through the dinosaurs' place. And you know, you see things like this in books, and this, but I remember Gloria was like, wow, I didn't realize it was so big. I mean, you sit there and you're like, right? I mean, it was enormous, this massive head crest. Think of the amount of chemicals you could store in that thing. You could breathe fire a few times, right, before you run out. And so perhaps, just a theory, they, these two chambers, the upper and lower chambers, where they stored these chemicals, and they could breathe these things out. Okay. You might be thinking, all right, Daniel Dave, so how do we know dragon myth and legend from reality? I mean, we don't have a surefire way of knowing, but I'm going to give you a couple of dragon stories, histories, that I'm going to suggest are fairly sober, pretty well documented. Uh, I have them in my book, and I think that there's a good chance that they were based in fact. I'll give you two of them, and we'll wrap things up here. The first one I want to tell you about is recorded by a guy by the name of Ulysses Aldrovandus. There's a picture of Ulysses on the right. Just to kind of put things into context a little bit, Aldrovandus is regarded by many people as the father of natural history. This guy worked at the world's first university in Bologna, Italy. You see it down the left. It's still in existence, very historic. 
he had the world's first museum. He actually, I mean, some people probably had things in their house, but he actually had a, a building where he would display curiosities and collectibles. Like he had things people would bring in boats, and he actually went on some trips himself, and he collected like an iguana and a monitor lizard and different things. And his stuffed animals are still around today. I went there with my family. We went to Bologna, Italy. We stopped at the museum, and we actually went in there, and I said, uh, I paid my fee. I said, very nice. You know, there's his iguana. There's his monitor lizard. Where's the dragon? Oh, they said, yeah, yeah. A lot of people even know about the dragon. That got lost over the years. But he tells the story about a dragon, and it's in one of his books. It's in a book called The Natural History of Serpents and Dragons. Nice book on dragons, right? And he, the way he records it is very precise. He gives the exact day on May 13th, 1572. The farmer Batista found a dragon on the lane. And Batista's walking behind his oxen, and he's going home from plowing his field, and all of a sudden the oxen stop. And he takes the stick, Floyd, and he beats him on the butt. Wham, 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 and they will move. So he goes around to the front to see what the problem is. Oh, there's a dragon. And he takes the stick and he beats the dragon over the head and he kills it. It's fairly small, I mean, but he was hissing in the way. And he takes the carcass and gives it to Alderondas, who has it stuffed and put in his museum. And so I'm talking to him and they say, oh, yeah, we lost the thing, but we have a watercolor drawing of it. Well, I didn't see that on the internet or anywhere. Can I have a copy? So, okay, you know, we sat and waited around. It took us a while, but they went down there and they got the thing and they made a scan of it. And, and so, there it is. That's his watercolor and all his Latin and stuff and his notes on this thing. It's not much of dinosaurs, dinosaurs go, but, you know, long neck, long tail, thing, small. But I think that's a pretty realistic story. Let me tell you another one. Here is the town of Poitiers. Am I saying that right? Any French speakers in here? We. Oui. Oui. I'm doing my best. Not Poitiers. Poitiers. Poitiers in France. Notice the river down here. Now this is this is a little bit more advanced than the story that I'm going to give you some centuries later, but you see this medieval town, beautiful medieval town in the hill countries of France. And there at the base of Poitiers is the Clain River. And this river runs through there. Ah! But there's a problem. Back in the day, a dragon was living in the river. And this dragon would slip out at night and wreak havoc. He'd steal lambs from the flock. He would threaten small children and he would cause problems. And one day he went up into the abbey. I don't know if this is the original building, but it's the original location of the abbey in Poitiers, St. Croix Abbey. And 580, this is a long time ago, 580 he came up in there and he killed a nun. And the townspeople had had enough. Gotta take out the dragon. But there's a problem. Nobody wants to go fight the dragon. Nobody. So they go to the jail, as the story goes. 
And they make a deal with a dude who was in jail for life for being a bad egg. And they say, if you are willing to go and fight the dragon, we'll set you free. And the dude says, I'm stuck in here anyway. I'll give it a try. And so he puts on some armor. In those days, the armor wasn't fancy. It was leather and, you know, you, you had skin, hide skin, you know, shields and stuff. And they dressed him up. This is 5th century. Dressed him up as best they could. And down to the Clain River he goes. And the people, good people of Poitiers are praying over him. And he goes down to fight the dragon. And he's gone for some days. And they're like, oh, did we lose him? And finally he comes back. And he killed the dragon. It was a tough fight. He's got blood and scars. And he's, the dragon breath like to have made him unconscious from its smelly breath. But he brings back the monster. And in 520 AD, they had a huge parade. They carried the carcass of the dragon all around the town. And the guy was a hero. And it's all recorded in the history of it. And this may be just a wee bit exaggerated in size. But this got a little bit of an aura of credibility to the story. And the story gets even a little bit more interesting. Because the good ladies of the Abbey of St. Croix in Poitiers, France said, some years later, we should get a carving made of the monster. And they had this carving made, and they call it Le Grand Goulet. This is the big monster. And notice some very specific features on this dragon. Notice the hint of claws on the wings. Notice this hairless kind of reptilian body with the stripes and the coils. Notice the widening on the end of the tail. These are very specific features. Notice the head crest. These are unique characteristics of rampharynchoid pterosaurs. Well, how on earth do they know in 1677, when this is commissioned, what a rampharynchoid pterosaur looks like in Poitiers, France? Hmm? Because I think they really encountered one. So this story is recorded by Sir John Lauder, who was a man from Scotland who was living in Poitiers at the time of the 1600s. It's pretty well documented. And if you're anywhere near Poitiers, you might want to stop by the museum. This wood carving is still there. And you can actually see all these unique features of this Le Grand Goulis, the great monster. Okay, let me conclude. Here's an atheist. Some of you may remember him. Carl Sagan. He would be famous for his show Cosmos, what, 1990s, something like that. I don't know. We didn't have a TV at the time, so I don't know. Uh, but he also wrote a book called The Dragons of Eden. An atheistic astronomer, Carl Sagan, said, quote, The pervasiveness of dragon myths in folk legends of many cultures is probably no accident. So he's saying... There's so many dragon stories, there's got to be something to it. So how did he, as an evolutionist and atheist, deal with this? Because he didn't believe that men encountered dinosaurs. No, dinosaurs died out 60 million years before man evolved. How does he account for it? 
Carl Sagan tried to account for the spread and consistency of dragon legends by saying they are fossil memories. Now follow this for a minute. Fossil memories of the time of the dinosaurs come down through us a general mammalian memory inherited from the early mammals, our ancestors, who probably had to compete with the great predator or the lizards. So what he's saying, Floyd, is that your great, 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 grandpapa, who's a squirrel, saw these things. And that memory, a fossil memory, got passed on through all these millions and millions and millions of years so that now all of a sudden we can draw a perfect dragon. What? Talk about faith. Talk about craziness. Do your kids have any fossil memories from things you experienced in your life? This is nuts. How can Christians respond to the dragons? Number one, stand against the evolutionary propaganda to reclaim the great reptiles for the glory of our great creator. Number two, use people's natural fascination with dragons as a segue into conversations about the Bible. Did you know the Bible talks about dragons? Oh, really? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Because God made men and dragons, i.e. dinosaurs, in the beginning. And that's why people could draw all these accurate depictions of dinosaurs. Number three, give God the praise he deserves for his wonderful creation. I've had it up to here. I mean, evolutionists have just co-opted reptiles long enough. We should be using them to glorify God. I love Psalm 148, verse 7. Praise the Lord from the earth, you dragons and all deeps. God deserves the glory for these creatures that are so awe-inspiring and amazing. Well, i got lots more information on my website. If you want to go out there, genesispark.com, leave me a note. But we like to say dinosaurs are living evidence 